introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I am your host, Tony Walter. Welcome to another episode. It's good to be back behind the mic. I thought, you know, this was a good time to do it. I got two great guests on, Thomas Felix Creighton and Roland Hume. Great guests. We have a great conversation uh, at the end of this. It's really, it was a really a good time because... Uh, we got to have good discussion, good history topics, and it's not very—it's not as political as you think it's going to be. It's more just discussing history and the topics, and I think that it gives a good insight about where we are. And uh, also, those two are just phenomenal at this. Uh, so, such a treat to have them on. So, I'm not going to do too much of an intro. Without further ado, let's get into the—I'm going to introduce—I'm going to introduce it, bring into how we get to today, and then I'm going to bring on the guest. So without further ado, here's how we got to where we are today. We'll start in the 9th century when the areas now known as Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia were known as Kiev Rus. As most countries at the time, there was not much of a strong central government. It was more of a collection of tribes that all kind of ruled their own ways. And it was during this time that Volodymyr the Great adopted Christianity and later Rus adopted the Byzantine Orthodox form of Christianity, which would set the stage for the Orthodox Christianities that much of Ukraine is, is known for. As with most other states in the Middle Ages, not much fluctuation happened until the 14th century. And by this time, the area was divided into the Golden Horde, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, and the Kingdom of Poland. Crimea was part of the Venetians, and at the time was immensely important in trade routes, and it still is today. The Black Sea is, is very much an integral part of, of what trade routes are. By the 15th century, the Golden Horde was distinguished, and the Crimean Khanate took over. That remained until the annexation to, into the Russian Empire in 1783. In the lands under Polish rule, much upheaval began in the 1600s when the Cossacks Yes, those same Cossacks, the ones from GoldenEye. And if you haven't checked out the GoldenEye episode, I suggest you go to uh, check out my past ones that's on YouTube and this little, little self-promotion plug. But check out the Cossacks episode because the Cossacks, the Leanne's Cossacks, have a very interesting story in their own right. But and starting in the 1600s, they fought back against the Polish mistreatment. Polish viewed them as uh, second-class citizens and put them in serfdom. The Cossacks were fighters and resourceful and they were fishermen and they were renowned cavalrymen. Their rugged fighting and the way of life that made them a formidable uh, to free the lands from Polish rule and set up their own government. In the mid-1600s, it depends on who you ask what happened, Russian historians will say that the Cossacks pledged to Moscow, while Ukrainian historians will say autonomy of Ukraine was vital importance in the negotiations. But from here, the area went into chaos, and the time period became known as the Ruin. By the late 1700s, the area had lost all autonomy and now was fully engulfed into Russian rule. The areas answered to St. Petersburg. Conflicts during this time until the late 1800s were really about serfdom. Uh, many different ethnicities occupying the area were Germans, Poles, Jews, Cossacks, a number of other tribes made up the area. The fights were over serfdom and the right to open industry. Following Russia's loss in the Crimean War, the land was opened up to industry, notably in the Donbass region. The Donbass region you're hearing a lot in the news. It's the eastern part of Ukraine, and it's where uh, most of the fighting is over and where Russia really stakes their claim to it. So let's, we're going to talk about the, the Donbass region. The Donbass region and Crimea are the basis for, again, a lot of what's going on today. Uh, they are more Russian-leaning, for sure. Whereas Rus Western Ukraine sees them as aligned with European powers and autonomous, the Russification of working class in these areas and the hardship of the Industrial Revolution 
would be the backdrop of the 20th century turmoil. In the year 1900, the revolutionary Ukrainian party created and distributed their first literature of the goal of a single unified Ukraine. After the revolt in 1905 of workers, the ban on the Ukrainian language and thought was lessened, and Ukrainian nationalism was once again building momentum. That was until 1914, World War I happened, and then 1917, the Russian Revolution happened. By the time Russia and Austria were at war, Russia was back to arresting, executing, silencing dissent. The Ukrainian language was banned again, literature was banned, and dissent punished irrefutably. The Bolshevik coup in 1917 further deepened hostilities. The Ukrainians set up their own government, and the Bolsheviks declared Ukraine part of the Soviet Union. Battle erupted in Kiev, and the Reds eventually being sent out after German support. Vladimir Lenin came to power in 1921 and implemented the economic structure that Ukraine would follow, which opened up to industry and agriculture. But there was relative freedom, and that was until Stalin came to power. Stalin made the Donbass region increase its in industry fourfold, but at the cost of lives of freedom. Stalin took away the middle-class gains in personal wealth as he further entrenched the nation in the collectivist practices. It's not about what Stalin believed that it was not the good for the people of the area, it was whatever was good for the state. And as a result of Stalin's economic policies, one of the greatest man-made famines ever occurred in 1932 and 1933, where 5 million starved to death. 4 million of those people were Ukrainian. Even with the famine, Stalin sent brigades to Ukrainian farmers demanding that they meet their quotas for the state. Food was taken because the state before all else. They would go, they would search the thing, and anything was trying to hold food or hoard food for their own families, it was confiscated for the state. The further despair and death deepened in Ukraine as a result of Stalin. In 1932, it became crime worthy of capital punishment by firing squad to steal food from the party. After the millions of Ukrainians died in the Donbass region, Stalin sent re Russians to repopulate the area with Russians. So 4 million people died of famine in Ukraine, especially in the Donbass region. And then Stalin sent Russians to repopulate the area, which is why the Donbass region is known as so Russian heavy. After this, World War II broke out and Ukraine was decimated by the Nazis. It was this time that the Lands Cossacks broke from the Soviets and then fought with the Germans and the story of Goldeneye was born. After the Battle of Stalingrad, the Germans were pushed out of Ukraine and Soviet rule once again in place. Industrialization over consumer needs and Stalin's secret police once again ruled the day. The people needed goods, food, and, f and food that... Under Stalin, workers were expendable assets of the state, especially Ukrainians, whom he had a palpable disdain for. Khrushchev was much less vengeful towards the Ukrainians when he took power in 1953. Khrushchev gave Crimea to the Ukrainians in a treaty to harbor more goodwill and to gain Soviet camaraderie. The 60s, the Ukrainians pushed what they called Stalinistic Tha, where they tried to fight their culture back and get back their autonomy. Desperately trying to cling to their influence, Soviets once again fought to get rid of Ukrainian scholars and influencers. Ukraine's economy deteriorated, Ukraine's economy deteriorated and was in shambles. Collectivism, de-incentivization, and the economy disparity plagued Ukraine. The Soviets needed energy desperately and used Ukraine to build nuclear plants. In 1968, Chernobyl happened, sending the Ukraine into further decay and despair. By the late 1980s, the writing was on the wall. Gorbachev knew it, and in a last effort to try and appease the satellites, but it was too late, the Soviet Union fell, and Ukraine was independent. December 1st, 1991, Ukraine became 
a fully independent and set up a parliamentary government. The government desperately wanted recognition on the world stage. In 1994, Russia, the United States, and the Ukraine worked out a disarming deal where Ukraine gave up all their nuclear weapons in hopes of protection from the West. At the time, Ukraine had the third largest nuclear uh, weapons depository. Also during this time, Crimea separatist movement began, and the fight over the Black Sea between Ukraine and Russia came to a head. I, I make the I make the analogy that Russia once they once the breakup happened so quickly that they just couldn't stand to take it. So, you know, Russia is kind of like Kanye, and Ukraine's kind of like Kim, and uh, Kanye just can't get over the fact that it's over. He wants Kim back, and NATO is kind of like Pete Davidson moving in. And uh, there's no way that Kim wants to, Kanye wants to see Kim with Pete Davidson. There's no way that Putin wants to see Ukraine with NATO. And, and that's, that's really what is um, a lot of the driving force right now. And as both, so in the 90s, as both nations maintained their tumultuous relationship, both nations' economies' fragility was apparent. And Russia maintained their heavy influence through Ukraine's reliance on natural gas. After Chernobyl happened, there was no more nuclear influence. So they were almost exclusively reliant on Russian natural gas. And in 2006, Russia cut off the supply of natural gas to Ukraine. Russia said it was because they did not pay their bill. But Ukraine said it was because it was a warning because Ukraine was again pursuing pro-West policy, trying to get into the European Union, trying to get into NATO. And as the economy sputtered, Ukraine became entrenched in corruption, organized crime, human and drug trafficking, and sex working. The following elections were heavily disputed and deemed illegitimate. In 2011, former Prime Minister Timoshenko was convicted of abuse of power in connection with natural gas deals with Russia and given a seven-year prison sentence. Members of staff were also convicted. In 2010, they heavily Putin-backed Yanukovych, won election in another, dispute, another disputed election. In November 2011, just days before the European Union deal was going to be struck between Ukraine and the European Union, it was abandoned without good reason. Protests in Kiev erupted as a result. And as a reward for not joining the European Union, Putin bought $15 billion worth of Ukrainian bonds and cut the price of natural gas to Ukraine. This act infuriated the people of Ukraine, and Yanukovych lost his base in both the east and west, Eventually, a coup occurred, and Alexander Turchnyov was put in place as president until Yatsenuk took over. While the rest of Ukraine was becoming more nationalist, Crimea was striving to separate to join Russia. On March 6th, Crimean parliament voted to secede the Ukraine and join Russia. The results were disputed as elections were guarded by armed men, and Russia's secession garnered 97% of the vote. Pro-Russian groups kidnapped and killed several Ukrainian politicians, the fighting continued until Ukrainian billionaire Poroshenko was elected president. In an attempt to quell the fighting, Russia backed forces and Ukrainian forces clashed. Several planes and helicopters were shot down. Casualties were amassing. On July 17th, Malaysian Airlines plane carrying 298 people was shot down by missiles. By the end of the year, it was estimated that over 5,000 people were killed in the fighting. Peace talks resumed in 2015, but several aggressive actions were still taken, adding an additional 9,000 deaths to the total toll. Sessions were made on both sides, with Russia gaining ground. By 2019, Volodymyr Zelensky emerged as a frontrunner for presidency after studying law and then being a t comedian on a TV show where he played the president. Ultimately, Zelensky won 73% of the vote. Zelensky was seen as pro-West and tried to garner favor from the U.S. and the EU. As COVID 
hit, the world lost focus, and Russia slowly built their forces around Ukraine, and invasion was imminent. The world is trying to act shocked now, but it has been known has been a known fact for a long time that Putin was going to invade. All throughout COVID, he built his forces. He put measures in place, and his aspirations went far beyond the Donbass region of Ukraine. As the fighting continues, we'll have to see where the story ultimately ends. And now we're going to bring on my guest today, Roland Hume and uh, Thomas Felix Creighton. And we're just going to kind of talk about what's going on. Thoughts, feelings, concerns. We're going to put on our tinfoil hats for a couple of times. Uh, it's really exciting, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, let's bring on my guest. G-Wagon, 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 all the housewives pulling up. I got a lot of toys. 720S pumping Fallout Boy. You was talking shit in the beginning. Back when I was feeling unforgiving. I know I pissed you off to see me winning. See the hit glue in my mouth and I be grinning. All right, welcome back. I'm very excited for today's episode. I have two fantastic guests on. You know him, you love him. Thomas Felix Creighton, the jawline of an angel, the voice to match. And we have another guest on today. I, his first time on, I got the, the pleasure of meeting him at Gatherall too. Been a big fan. Talked to a lot on Instagram. This is the first time I have you on the show. So I'm very excited to have Roland Hume on as well. Uh, welcome in, guys. Oh, thank you. I met you at... I met you at Gatherall One, actually, Donny, but I didn't have the beard then, so maybe you didn't remember me. <laughs> I was wearing a skirt, though. Ah, uh, yes, I do remember that. Yes, you're right. Lots of Gatheralls, lots of skirts. I never, <laughs> usually, I never forget a skirt, so I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> and uh, Thomas, welcome back in again. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you. Well, I'm definitely excited to do this. It's been a little while since I've done an episode. But I'm very excited to have you two on today because uh, we're going to talk about Ukraine and, and we're just kind of get an idea of what you guys think is going on, why it's happening now, and just get a feel for it. So I'll start with, with you, Thomas. Uh, w- let's go back to where do you think this, this first part, this growing tension started from? I think, again, it's... As with so many things, there's a lot of history mm. behind this. Hence, this is a history podcast. Quantum <laughs> of history, you know, it's in the name. Um, so I've been following this kind of story for a long time, looking at, say, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, Crimea. It's been building up um, really however long since the fall of the Soviet Union, since the rise of the Soviet Union, since the Tsarist Russia. Um, so it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when does it begin. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like ups and flows, right? There's there's waves that go in and it goes up and down. And I was reading, I mean, this starts all the way back to the ninth century when it was Kevrus, right? I mean, this is long, long, long periods of time. And I think we're we're on, on again a, a bell curve back at back at the top here. What, what do you think, Roland? What do you think has really gotten on? And where do you? What's your viewpoint about where we are today and how we got here? It was so funny when this whole thing happened. I remember I reached out to you because, like, I've loved all the content you put out because it's so focused on history. And I'm a history major and I focused on Victorian history. And a major part of that was uh, the Crimean War. And it's yeah. so interesting to look back. It's like we were having a war about Crimea and about Russia's influence in that particular region over 100 years ago. And here we are again. And then you look at the history. And as you said, it goes right back to the ninth century. I mean, It has been such a hotly contested part of Europe for so long. And then you have this really powerful, like, nationalist identity of what Ukraine is. And right now, I mean, it's horrific what is going on. But at the same time, 
I don't know about you guys, but it's like to see the Ukraine put up such a fantastic defense and to see figures like the, the president standing there being so defiant is kind of heartwarming in a horrifying way. Yeah. I mean, the Crimean War, I think it was what, 1853, somewhere around there, 1853, 1856. And, exactly right. And they, they viewed this as a hotbed because portways are always valuable. And you look in 2014 when, again, Crimea wanted to um, succeed back to Russia. It's 170 years. It's the same fight. I mean, what did, so I, I don't know much about the Crimean War. I'd love to, for you to elaborate what the Crimean War was in, in the 1800s as opposed to what it was in 2014. So if you want to kind of get into that, Roland. Well, that's really – I was okay, so before I launch into it, because I might – even though I'm a history major, I might get things wrong. Thomas, go on. Do you know anything about the Crimean War or anything like that? So this is really about Russia trying to get a Black Sea port, right? Yeah. So ever since yeah. the Dutch Muscovy has become powerful, they've been looking for access to waterways. Um, so this was historically the Ottoman Empire's backyard. Uh, so the Ottoman Empire expanded out. So this is a war between the what was then the failing Ottoman Empire and the rising Russian Empire, with the Brits and the French joining together with the Turks to try and stop Russia from getting those ports. Now, of course, we didn't do it for free. Uh, the British <laughs> Empire determined was determined to have payments. Part of it was that we would take over the governance of Cyprus. And of course, since I lived there for seven years, that's why that's why I first kind of became aware of it, first started looking into it. And it is interesting at what an effect it's had. So modern nursing, you know, it was created by Florence Nightingale, who was, of course, doing this in uh, the Crimean War. Simple differences between British English and American English. So in British English, we have uh, balaclavas. I'm not sure how to describe them in American English. It's, uh, we use the same word. Do you? Mm, Balaclavas, oh, yeah. Here in California, no one knew what it was. Oh, really? <laughs> well, <laughs> California. That's why, that's why California's California. I know, you only need a balaclava in California if you're over a liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, the thing in California, you don't even need them anymore. They don't even prosecute them anyway. So that's another. To- that's a topic for another story. Well, you, you hang on. You were sharing about a, a rob bank robber went into a store with a face mask. Sorry, without a face mask. And people were commenting on this. <laughs> yes, yes. They were. They face. Yeah, it was for when uh, COVID was in like 2021. Last last year, they still were about COVID, and they were more worried that the bank robber went in without a, a, a KN95 mask than they was about the fact that he was robbing a bank. But what's his face exposed? Did he just not bother? What was was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't care. It's Baltimore. There was a uh, British bank robber who went in wearing a motorcycle helmet for disguise, but unfortunately his motorcycle helmet has his name written on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're not criminals because they're smart. <laughs> exactly. Um, I was like, going quickly back to the Crimean War, the, the, the first time round, uh, this is what really put Britain and France as allies, um, and it's one of the longest-lasting uh, treaties of friendship between well, any country uh, is between Britain and France starting the Crimean War. It gave Cyprus to Britain. That was our payment. Um, and also gave us the word cardigan from Lord Cardigan, who liked marrying them. <laughs> I find it such an interesting conflict because it was this weird nexus point in history. Uh, people often think the, the American Civil War is like the first modern war. But in many ways, the, the Crimean War was the first modern war in which you had explosive shells in which you had like modern medicine with uh, Florence Nightingale, like transforming things there. You had the telegraph, you had um, trains. It was the first modern war and it was yet so close to 
uh, old wars and things. It's like the French and the British were fighting side by side, but the British soldiers used to call the bad guys, the Russians, Frenchies, because they were so used to being in conflict with France, even though they were allies at the time. That's so great. And it's a war correspondence, really, as we'd understand it today. Kind of Absolutely. Useful story, but if uh, one random story, is, as he's mentioned, the, the difference between the English and the French, that's historic. You know, we've We've been upsetting each other for the last thousand years, and so once the fighting it got too cold for, once it got too cold for fighting, they had to entertain themselves in uh, in whatever way they could. So the British cavalry entertained themselves with fox hunting. Now the French observed this, and a French cavalryman observed the British cavalry chasing a fox, and of course the British cavalry is going at the speed of the dogs, um, you know, because that's how we hunt, hunt with hounds. Uh, so the French cavalryman charged ahead of them and cut down the fox with his sword just to annoy the brits but to his surprise the brits weren't furious they were kind of perplexing my dear fellow you don't sword a fox you hunt a fox <laughs> <laughs> oh oh you brits and you french <laughs> it is funny because now that was the turning point where now we've had like this passive aggressive relationship whereas we used to be enemies <laughs> from aggressive aggressive to passive aggressive <laughs> but um one of, one of the things i find so interesting about this conflict is like uh putin is using so many duplicious terms about like oh we're going in there to stop the rise of nazis and it's like ukrainian president is jewish so it's know, difficult it, it, to argue with that but yeah. the crimean war originally in the 1850s it there were, it was all about religion it was about um, the Ottomans and the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they were worried that the, uh, too much of the Roman Catholic influence was coming in there, and then the Russians with their Orthodox Church coming in. There were a lot of excuses, but as Thomas said, it all goes down to the fact that the Russians wanted to have a port, and the British and the French and the Ottomans didn't want them to have that. So we come up with all sorts of excuses about nationalism or religion and whatever, but at the end of the day, it is all tactical. Isn't isn't that so interesting how that's, that story plays out so many times? You want to drum up emotional and you want to make, get people invested in a war that if you just sell on what it's actually about, a port, who gets who gets excited about that? But, you know, you've got, the, you said, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. I believe it was even under Polish rule, and that's where the, the Catholic Catholicism was coming in. And all these, that's that's where you sell. That's your selling point for this war. But the prize is not about that. People who are in power don't care about that. They care about the ports and, and the power, and you sell it to the people through emotions. And you're seeing that. You saw it in Crimea in, in 1853. See it in 2014. Now you're seeing it again in 2022 it's a story that plays out so many times uh what do you see as he does talk about a lot about the um how russia is fatalistic about this is this is this is our territory and, and they romanticize about the russian empire and, and the soviet empire and, and just the, the the flag bearing and the drum beating um do you see a lot of that being drummed up or how effective do you think that's been with the russian people now but it's largely been kept away from the TV. It's going far away. So it's more dominating the Western media than it is dominating the Russian media at the moment. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if there's a great wish in Russia uh, to have the whole of Ukraine, perhaps the Russian-speaking areas, uh, but not, say, Western Ukraine. Um, so, Although, was it in uh, You Only Live Twice? Uh, you know, Fleming writes, the nations that were once great never forget it. It's baked into the bones. <laughs> uh, oh, that's good. That is good. Yeah. So I do think that's true, uh, but in the same way, if, if you know, if the United States lost a massive amount of territory, it would want it back, and if Britain, you know, was invaded, we'd want it back. Um, so I can see that it's it's the same kind of mentality, but I'm not seeing that played across Russian media 
as I say, it, it mostly seems to be, well, dare I say, elites versus elites. Yeah, I made the I made the, uh, the analogy that right now Russia is Kanye, and uh, Ukraine is Kim, and you know, and uh, NATO is Pete Davidson, and Kanye just can't <laughs> Kanye just can't see Kim being with a skinny white boy, and and. <laughs> And so that, that's what, how I feel this is right now, is that there's no way, because Ukraine has flirted so much with NATO, um, that, that, that there's no way that they're going to let, um, that Putin was going to let that fall. It seems like, from what I've read before, in 2006, Russia cut off the natural gas to Ukraine. They said because it was, um, because Ukraine was not paying their bills, Ukraine is saying no. It's because we started going back to trying to be a uh, Western and trying to join NATO again. And then when this recent thing, I've got this, you know, put my tinfoil hat on real quick. Is is the uh, the fact that you know Biden and his son are so intertwined with the energy in Ukraine, and so many millions and and dollars went in there that my thing is I thought that maybe. Um, Putin thought that Ukraine had bought and paid their way into NATO once Biden was elected. And Biden was very much intertwined with Ukraine. And so that there was, Putin saw this as his chance that if he didn't make action now, Ukraine would go with NATO. And once he joins NATO, then NATO troops are at the doorsteps of Russia at all times. Um, you know, take my tinfoil hat back off and then talk pragmatically. What do you guys think about that kind of angle um, it being more about NATO and to keep control of the energy crisis. Oh, that's, I mean, I don't think you have to call it a tinfoil hat to think about <laughs> that. I mean, especially like with Biden, with Hunter Biden, his business in the Ukraine and stuff like that. I mean, those are facts that exist. That's the thing. And I know it was a talking point in the election and, you know, people were trying to insinuate all sorts of things. But it is very true that America has a very significant interest in the Ukraine. And I think you're right. It's like, at this point, if the Ukraine was allowed to enter NATO, if Biden's presidency continued to, to build Western influence there, that would make it an unassailable target. So it's like for Putin, it's now or never. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, if I if I take on the tinfoil hat for myself. Um, <laughs> yes. Are let's we pa sharing a tinfoil yes, hat? Yes, pa pass a tinfoil hat. Tinfoil hats are fun. <laughs> so, I mean, Henry Kissinger has been criticized for seeing the world essentially as a game of risk. But if we do see it as game of risk and you start flipping it around, you know, the United States and the Western countries have been pushing closer and closer and closer to the borders of Russia. And, you know, how much of this is a game of how close can we get to Russia before Russia snaps? Yeah. Like if, if Russia and China were buying up all of Mexico and Canada and we're putting their military base as well, what would happen if the Russians put a military base in, say, Cuba? I think there'd be a reaction. <laughs> uh, so, again, seeing it in those terms of simple, it's a game of risk. We've moved our pieces close, and they've moved their piece close to us. Yeah. And there are real people living there on this chessboard, isn't it? Yeah. Scary. It's the Turkish proverb of, you know, when two elephants collide, it's the grass that gets trampled. <laughs> I like that. That's a, great, uh, that's a great proverb. So where do you see the enemy game going with this? What happens? What happens going forward? Ooh. For myself, it's fascinating because, as I said, there are Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine, right? So just mm -hmm. as with Georgia in, I think, 2008, uh, south of Sepetya and Abkhazia were invaded by Russia, they were Russian-speaking areas. Now, a lot of these borders were drawn up as internal borders of the Soviet Union. You know, they weren't 
expected to be future national borders. And they don't really match onto what they were ever before. So, for example, South Ossetia, as what is recognized by most countries as a region of Georgia, has actually never been governed by Georgia. It's always been either part of the Soviet Union or a semi-independent state, effectively dependent on Russia. So I think if Russia had moved into the Russian-speaking areas, then I think it would all be very predictable. We'd condemn it, but accept it. But moving into areas that are historically Ukrainian, that really makes it unpredictable. I think bets are off on what happens next. I was reading the interesting story about the Donbass area, which is the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, that area used to be a lot of um, Cossack and also uh, Ukrainian thing, but there was the, the Great Famine of 1933, 1932, oh, where, yes. where 4 million Ukrainians were killed. And then Stalin, as part of his thing, was to industrialize the Ukraine he used, because there's a lot of coal there. So the idea was to use the coal, industrialize it, and then instead of worrying about what the consumers needed, what the people needed, which was food, he just said, no, factories, factories, factories. A lot of what Mao did when he took over in China is take over production and take away from what the needs of the people as opposed to the needs of the state. So once those 4 million people came in, Stalin then repopulated that with Russians, which is why it's such a Russian-heavy influence in the Donbass region is because they were all killed from, 4 million were killed from famine and then repopulated with Russians in accordance with Stalin. Um, so I just, it's it just, uh, you know, things like that are just haunting to see what what these, these dictators of the earliest 20th century were capable of. It's interesting, but it's also... It seemed to be common at the time. So, for example, uh, as Greece gained independence from Turkey and there was a civil war just after the First World War, so we're talking about 1919 to about 1923, um, there was an exchange of population. So about a million Greeks left what is now Turkey, about a million Turks left what is now Greece. And it was just a simple exchange of population. And it was seen around the world as largely a positive thing. Like Turkey and Greece have had pretty peaceful relations ever since. Of course, we see it internally with devastating results as well and it's uh, why we don't generally do it these days um, equally the idea of him invading this place because there's people who speak my language I mean that is what Hitler did <laughs> yeah <laughs> and there's good reasons why we don't do this now but at the time it was very very different isn't that kind of like what's going on with the Kurds too where they don't have a home they don't have a home and they're not welcome anywhere they go Yes, exactly. So we have this idea that, you know, if you speak a language, then you should have your own country, if you have your own culture, if you, you know, every nation has a right to self-determination. The only problem is we don't exactly have a good definition of what a nation is. Yeah. So are the Kurds a nation? Are they a minority group? What are they? Um, they're being seen more and more as some kind of nationality. Um, but again, their borders don't really match where they live and, and where a lot of them live uh, is as a minority in other countries. Mm -hmm. It's funny, you could look at Ukraine and be like, what, what is you could, the Ukrainian identity? What is the Ukrainian nation? Because it's so weird. It's like you've had certain periods, like when the Cossacks were there, the Ukraine swept over and occupied from north to south that entire band of Eastern Europe. And then it would disappear and be like consumed by Poland and Russia and, and all these other things. So it's like what the Ukrainian identity is is such an interesting thing and it has not been a consistent presence in Europe throughout the, the last thousand years. Yeah, and even when I was trying to research, try to get like the, a good history of Ukraine, it's not easy because like you said, there was the Golden Herd era, there was the Polish area, there was the Cossack era, there's all sorts of different times and uh, to try to pinpoint one 
what what actually it is to mean to be Ukrainian is is very difficult. Uh, what do you think could be done to uh, prevent things like this in the future? Because I, I kind of have an idea of, of what the problem, what we could do in the future. But what do you guys think we can do to stop Russia from these types of advances going forward? Oh, I'm a romance novelist, so I probably don't have any consistent, uh, any like um, good ideas in terms of there. I'm just like going to write a very stern warning to you, <laughs> Mr. Putin. I'm going to put a letter in the Times. I have so many adjectives. I have a I have a plethora of adjectives at my disposal <laughs> waiting to launch on you, Mister Mister Putin. <laughs> uh, what do you What do you think, Felix? What, what, uh, in in uh, if you're gonna if you were in charge right now, if you were to try to have a plan going forward, what do you think would would be your approach to kind of neuter what um, Putin's done? I think one thing that uh, a lot of Russians want is simple respect for their country, right? So they've been a great nation in the past. Uh, they wish to be a great nation now. And often when we've had international conferences, the Russians have kind of been away from, say, the EU or away from the United States. And they haven't really received what they might perceive as the respect they should be given. Mm-hmm. So historically, they've had a sphere of influence that goes around them. And again, we've been pushing closer and closer Um how much do we want this? How much do we really want all our chips to be right next to Russia versus how much do they want control over there near abroad? Mm. Um, this is how they describe it. I think in the case of Ukraine, the Russians want to have Ukraine a lot more than we don't want to, them to have it. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. So one thing is that our, our rhetoric from our politicians and from our media is this is devastating. This is going to be the start of World War Three. But I don't think we have the stomach for it. I don't think we want to send troops in. I'm not even sure if we have the right number of troops for sending in. So I think, first of all, just a recognition to try and match our rhetoric to the reality might be a very good first step. But also to see how we can how we can utilize Russia as the responsible power in the region. Mm-hmm. I find that such an... Because when everything ha- kicked off with Georgia, I was really interested because it was like, okay, this is a different thing. When it's the Middle East... You get all these American troops going over there and you get this stuff like that. When it's Georgia, there's not much we can do. We were kind of proven impotent when that happened. It's like we can put sanctions on and stuff like that, but you're not going to have a bunch of American troops suddenly going into Eastern Europe. That's not going to happen. And so Putin has a certain amount of autonomy in that region. Yeah, absolutely. I think he knows that he has Europe by the balls. I think he knows that, uh, you know, almost... I believe it was almost 30% of Russia's GDP is based on energy, based on natural gas. And Russia is only the 19th largest uh, domestic producer in the in the world. So I, I, Russia was really has, has had, I think, has trouble coming to terms with they're not what they used to be. I mean, your 19th place, your GDP for your, your, um, your average uh, income for your people is $10,000. So you are not this big player on, on the stage anymore. And I think that what's happened is that Russia has so much power because they control the energy. And I was just doing, I had an interview for a job last week, and it's, it's, a, it's a good size firm, does world, worldwide, um, worldwide contracts and stuff. And, and I asked them, what, what area of law should I be focusing on that's growing? And they said the two biggest things that I should focus on are water and energy because one California is going to be out of water <laughs> in the next couple of years in the next decade and energy the world is going to absolutely battle over energy especially with all the climate 
they've st- Europe has stopped all their ability to create their own energy, and the U.S. is following the same suit. They're they're going down, shutting down our pipelines, and and trying to go with green energy, which is great and the progress is great, but it's still not sustainable for the, the world's needs. And Russia and China know this, and Russia and China say, "All right, well, we don't give a shit about the environment. <laughs> we, we will strip Africa. We will strip Russia. We will take Azerbaijan. We will take the Caspian Sea. We will do whatever we have." In order to, to own this, um, and I think that that's something we have to kind of address is that we, Europe especially, they have to really understand that they can't only be beholden to Russia's energy because that's that's what makes this world go. Everybody needs energy. Everybody needs it. Um, what do you guys think about that type of response? That uh, you can't because Russia knows it. Look, if you want to if you want to try to fight me or back me or do sanctions, I'll just make your energy very expensive. And that will just, I'll have you by the balls. And he knows it. And European energy costs right now are like 10 times what they normally are, aren't they? Yeah. And they just keep rising. All these climate accords and look, I mean, it's a, you know, we all want to save Mother Earth, right? But at the same point, there's a lot of other things you have to worry about too. And and uh, to, to completely cut your own, to castrate yourself with from energy is, is suicide. And you're seeing the impacts of it now. I mean... Just a quick word that whilst we're talking about, you know, water shortages, you know, war over water has been a serious concern in the Middle East. Whilst we're talking about energy, this is the perfect time to be watching Quantum of Solace again. <laughs> yes, actually, yes. very good point. Very good point. Also, listen to the episode of episode 10 of Quantum of History, where uh, myself and David Zariski go into that exact same thing. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. <laughs> no, I'm going to back to it then. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a question. It's a crazy. What is power? You know, we often talk about you know words as power or money is power, but as we're seeing, power is power. You know, when you've got them by the balls, the hearts and mind follow. Yeah, I heard. This, I heard this great. And I, I think from an intelligence point of view, yes, and there are certain things. It's like, oh, you disagree? I was, I was just going to say because in terms of like um, Brexit. Obviously, Russia had a huge amount of digital propaganda going in and they, they pushed very hard for Brexit to happen, which now I can see, you know, if you fracture the European Union to a certain extent, that gives you an advantage when you have a situation like this. All of the Russian meddling in the, the American election, I mean, that weakens America's position to do these things. And it's it's really it's really tricky, but you can see now that, you know, some of the things where we were like, we want autonomy, we want freedom, we want to be able to make choices without having to, to do what the, the right thing is, is. But then you can see that actually these were chess moves to help weaken the positions. So when Putin plans something like this, it gives him an advantage. Yeah, he, he owns it. I mean, I, I was just um, studying them. Um the constitution and separation of powers right now there's a great line that one of the justices said about um the difference between the executive and the legislative branch and it says power isn't the one that makes the tool it's the person that uses the tool and i mean it's one thing to sit here and make all laws and make all these ideas but unless you can wield the sword then what what good are these words what good is these threats what good is all that stuff if you don't have the power behind it then what is the point of it and putin knows it putin knows Look, nobody really cares enough about Ukraine. I mean, you could put your social media, you can put your all that, but is you know are are they going to be able to spend any more that they do on energy I, I, to grind Europe to a halt? I, are they really going to do it? I don't know. 
And it kind of tested the waters. It's like yeah. in Georgia, it's like, okay, it turns out that the world is kind of toothless. And then Crimea in 2014, oh, it turns out the world is kind of toothless. And you keep pushing it until at some point that there, there has to be a line that, that gets crossed. And I wonder if this is it. Yeah, bunch of paper tigers is, is what we become. So, you know, Felix, I know you, Thomas, you have a, a good view of was Is Taiwan next? That was actually my first thought and my first concern. <laughs> if we allow this, what happens next? Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, Taiwan is, is my concern that if the world is willing to allow this kind of thing, I mean, you know, as I say, there's Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine. They've overstepped that massively. But the question is, you know, if we allow you to do this, what about China? Yeah. Um, because, you know, Putin and Xi Jinping are making pancakes together. So. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. But, yeah, it's the same. The only thing I can say about Taiwan, though, is Taiwan has things that the world needs. Ukraine doesn't really yeah. – Ukraine doesn't really need anything. Like, they don't give us – I mean, what do we need from Ukraine? They've been a floundering exactly. economy. They, they have nothing to give. Or as Taiwan, I was reading somewhere that they make 80% of the world's um, – the chips. They go into all the digital – Everything, your car, your your smartphone, your watch, all that stuff. Almost eighty percent of them are now made in Taiwan, and the I've world. I've heard this before. Yeah, but the, if you choose between which country, and uh, it was an internet poll, so everyone was like, "I have a gaming computer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna save Taiwan." Uh, <laughs> we've, we've seen anonymous right try to take down Russian websites. Think how nuts they would go over Taiwan. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's another fascinating thing. I mean anonymous have been doing really solid work anonymous is one of those weird things it's like we are bond fans we're into an evil guy overseeing an empire whereas like uh, anonymous which is a collective of people there's no single individual and also they are both the good guys and the bad guys depending mm -hmm. on your perspective yeah i mean in the election you could see them as the bad guys and this they're the good guys it's like so it's it's very weird. There are a lot of players that kind of like spin some chaos into this. We used to have the great nation states and the leaders doing things, but now we actually have autonomous groups that have significant actual tangible power. Yeah, it's very interesting. Absolutely. What do you, uh, on, a, on a more lighter note, what do you see this ending up for Bond? <laughs> Where does Bond go from there? Does this influence the next, the next Bond 26? Ooh, that's a good question. Pierce Brosnan's Bond does speak a bit of Russian and went to Russia a fair bit. Um, yeah. And that was kind of past the time that it was too scary and too relevant. Um, it was always interesting to me that Daniel Craig's Bond was supposed to be hard and gritty, and he did nothing. But His Bond did nothing in the Middle East at the time of the War on Terror. He dodged that storyline completely. So oh, it seems yeah. that whatever's going on in the world that's too scary, Eon will not touch. Um, so it could be the result is we won't have another Russian-speaking Bond. It's too scary. <laughs> yeah, they probably That's... they probably wouldn't have gone with the uh, the the bio terror had uh, <laughs> had it been two years after, right? Yes. Is that why they changed it to nano robots? Is that <laughs> <That's>, uh... <laughs> that that must be it? Uh, that was kind of weird when you think about it. Yeah, it's like there were certain things. I don't know the full history of that plot, but it's kind of like it it it, it was uncomfortably close to certain things that happened in real life. Yeah. <laughs> very much so so what do you think as you said Donny but he was one minute in the future and that's terrifying <laughs> <laughs> well I hope to see him back I hope to see him back fighting fighting the Russians uh, do you guys have anything any, any other parting 
parting thoughts on here i know this has been i really appreciate you guys coming out and it's been a, a fun talk as always do you have any parting parting words you want to say about the situation i'll let you go first Roland. Well, I was going to say, do you know what? We talk about what is Ukraine? What is the Ukrainian identity? And um, it was around the 1700s and the 18th century where Ukraine actually became like a thing. And there was this very famous, I always love to do things in terms of writing and culture and stuff. We talk about Greece. Yeah. Like to me, Byron is like hugely important because of uh, Byron's influence on Greek independence and stuff like that. There was a chap called Taras Shev- uh, Shevchenko, who was known as Kobzar Taras and Kobzar means um, bard in Ukrainian. And he he wrote uh, back in the, the early days, in the, the 18th century, when they were t- when Ukraine was being the subject of, uh, of people trying to invade the stuff. I won't read the whole thing, but it's, When I die, then make my grave high on an ancient mound in my own beloved Ukraine in stepland without bound. Whence one may see wide-skirted wheatland, and bro's steep cliff shore there whence what may hear the blustering river wildly roar till from ukraine to the blue sea it bears in fierce endeavor the blood of foemen then i'll leave wheatland and hills forever and he wrote that in the the 1800s i believe talking about how ukraine was like this pawn between all these different powers and to me it, it's so interesting to see the same thing happening again but just like then ukrainian identity exists and is stronger than ever and i mean here in where i live in new jersey we have ukrainian church ukrainian culture came to america from the ukraine and it's it's something that we take very personally here and it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting and it's terrifying that it happens and it's terrifying that we are having another war in europe but at the same time i think ukraine is probably in the best situation it's ever been to make a stand and have its independence. And you can see now if any of the news reports and intelligence reports are right, that the Ukraine is actually doing phenomenally well against the, the Russians. We thought the Russians would just sweep through, but in fact, they are getting much, much more resistance than they anticipated. Do you think and that? So I don't know. Do you think that's going to backfire on, on Putin? Because I know that a lot of this part was him, again, drum beating and flag waving and to drum up support and, and again, have this big sense of, nationalism what happens if russia loses what happens if russia i think he, I think he slapped down his hand and he was like we're gonna call and it turned out he had like a really lousy hand yeah yeah i mean like you said the, the russia is not even what it was the 19th biggest gdp i mean they're not anywhere what they used to be so it's not out of the realm of possibility that you know mike tyson gets his buster douglas moment and you know, and he's and Putin's left picking his mouthpiece off the floor after getting beat by Ukraine. I mean, that's that would be the exact talk about your all-time backfires. Yeah. What do you think, Felix? What is what is your uh, got any parting thoughts for the uh, for the discussion? Uh, certainly, for me, the most dangerous thing about Russia is not a, not a Russia that's too strong. It's a Russia that's weak and a Russia that potentially fragments. Uh, um, and I think it's death for us to be dangerous for us all. Um, so some of the newspapers have been talking a lot about the Cold War. It's interesting, the newspapers always grab like two analogies, the Second World War or the Cold War, uh, yeah. but for a bit more creative. Right? If we look back, again, in the 19th century, we've been talking about, you know, we're looking at a multipolar world in which there wasn't necessarily, okay, there's the British Empire, but there, there was a great deal of even spread in terms of power. And I think recognizing that Russia is... Okay, maybe not a global power, but a regional power. 
mm. and that it, it wants control over its own backyard. Um, and I think kind of recognizing that and kind of working with it, again, it's not to suggest what they're doing is okay, but from our point of view, I can see our politicians having tremendous rhetoric that's just not matched by action, and that kind of disconnect is never healthy. Yeah, uh, that's, that's interesting because there is almost a romanticism too about Ukraine, but Ukraine has been a is rated on the third most corrupt government in, in the world right now. I don't know. I'd have to exactly look on what index that was, but I, I've heard that Ukraine is well known for its, its corruption and its politics. I mean, right now the, the president is a, a comedian. I mean, he was a lawyer too, but, um, <laughs> you know, but he was, he played, it's such an interesting story. He played a TV show for the last, for from like 2016 and 2019, where he played an ordinary guy who became president. And then he became president, and they say that he's just a puppet of an oligarch too, in Ukraine. So it's, it's um, you have to worry about romanticizing either side, and it's kind of an interesting story that you have, or even an interesting point of view you have, Thomas, about that Russia it knows how to control its own backyard, um, and that is an interesting thing. That what happens if it breaks apart? What happens with this? Or, you know, instead of having one Putin who's been there forever and who's in charge what happens when it descends into chaos. So mm. I, that's an interesting way to look at it too because again you you don't want to you don't want to romanticize too much about what the reality of the situation is. Ukraine is uh you, you root for the people and for sure and that's the thing is the people are the ones that suffer but the elites they're they're not, you know, completely clean hands either, right? Absolutely, and um, it was an American defense analyst who, in the early 90s, was asked, with the fall of the Soviet Union, is the world now more peaceful, more safe? And he replied to a Senate committee, we've moved from having one big dragon to focus on to having a jungle full of snakes. Ooh, I like that. Look at, look at, look at, this is why Thomas always gets the invites. Look at these bombs he's just dropping on here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's I know a- my quote. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. Thomas out. <laughs> no, but that's great. I mean, again, I, I really do. I like that perspective too, because sometimes you can get lost so much on the in the in the feel good part of it that you forget and you don't see the reality of that. Um, not everything is not everything is black and white. It's, there's a lot of gray in this area too. And the rhetoric of politicians is isn't nauseating to watch. Yeah. The like to, it is. I find it nauseating to find to watch, listen to a career politician speak these inauthentic, overblown, hyper, hyperbolic terms that you know damn well he didn't give a fuck about. Yeah, and and for me, there's a big change between say going back to the '80s with Thatcher's cabinet. It seemed that to be in her cabinet, you had to have done something really great in the Second World War. A huge number of people had actually been in the front lines and were then at the top of government. Um, Whereas now we have people who are completely disconnected. And in many ways, I mean, these people haven't lived abroad. They haven't really dealt with any of this. Um, So so it is concerning, (laughs) the lack of frontline experience in our modern politicians. Yeah, I mean, Kamala Harris over, I mean, not trying to get into the politics of it, but just as anybody could say, you have Kamala Harris who goes over there, who is just who was a lawyer in California, and then now is on the world stage trying to do these complex things, and she is so over her head, and it's so clear. Um, mm. 
Yeah, it's it's hard, and it goes. I'm sure. Do you guys, How do you feel about Boris Johnson? I, I don't really have a good feel about what. The, do you guys hate him, or do you loathe him, or do you find him a clown? I don't really even know what you guys truly feel about. What are, what are your feelings about your politicians? Because you look at what Justin Trudeau has done. Um, again, another weak clown person. We got our Biden. We got all these things. You got all these people in charge who are so far removed from a real conflict. Um, mm. They do. They feel they're they're in over their head. I mean, with Bojo, my personal views, of course, he can put forward his clown persona, but underneath that, there does seem to be something real. And we've seen that in recent weeks when he's been embroiled in a personal scandal where he's had to apologize to Parliament and to the Queen, which is exceptional. I've never come across this of apologizing to both sides for the same offense. Imagine and yet... having to apologize to the Queen. I would just die. <laughs> yes. And yet he is there. And the big question is, you know, on the conservative side, so who could replace him, right? So in our system, we can replace the prime minister at any time. Would you rather see Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, become prime minister? Would you rather see Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, become prime minister? I mean, there was a good two-week window in which it would have been almost the most straightforward thing to remove him from office, put in someone else. And simply there wasn't another candidate um, on the opposition benches. It's equally worrying. Um what can I say is the best available, and that doesn't say very much. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it astounding? I find it so astounding that, and you look at these presidential races over here, and and, and I mean, this is this is all we can get. We have we have yes. all this ingenuity and all these brilliant people who who go and do great, amazing things, and we're left with leaders that are this. It, it's it almost does yeah. again. If if I can put my tinfoil back tinfoil hat back on. All right, it's firmly back on. Uh, it does. It seems. It seems as if you know oligarchs in you know the deep state or whatever put in people that are just okay and can be can be led, um, mm. can be influenced and bought. I mean, I, I just it, it astounds me who rises to the top now, and it doesn't seem like it's on a great achievement. It seems on so many ul- other ulterior things. I, I I think there's a cert- to a certain point. The wonderful thing about our society is we have risen to a certain point where our generation doesn't need to worry about war. We don't need to serve on the front lines and things like that, which is great. But at the same time, you know, my grandfather was evacuated from Dunkirk. My father served in Cyprus. It's like, I've never done anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think to a certain extent, you know, you, we live in, we live in a society in which we become very soft. We've never had to worry about the things that people in the Ukraine do. I mean, they've always lived on, Russia's doorstep at the moment every single adult male over the age of 16 is being given an AK-47 to defend this country and it's kind of like that's a different way of life and that's a different experience and we are all so so lucky not to have to have experiences like that but in some ways maybe that works to our detriment yep you remind me of the old eastern European joke which is that you look around you you see things are really really bad but don't worry things will get so much worse. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that's that's uh, that's where we'll end it, guys. I, I love you guys for coming on. Thank you guys so much. It's been a, such a great talk. And uh, I, I, We're going to have to see how this plays out. We're going to have to see. We're gonna have to do this again. We're going to have to do a, the follow-up in, uh, in a couple weeks and see what we've done and uh, to go from there. Oh, is that is that Gold 964? Are you? I'm just holding up here, Donnie. There's you and I. <laughs> you and I have to have a like Scaramanga Bond kite like, <laughs> confrontation at some point. Because I hear you're pretty good with this, but 
I, I'm, I'm the real deal too. <laughs> well, oh dear, that's fighting talk. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it will be a more unfair than we see now. I'll tell you that, Roy. <laughs> Boys with toys. Boys with toys. <laughs> that's it's funny because Donnie's like six foot four and huge, <laughs> built like a brick shit house. Um, yes, I might. I might be able to. I might be able to take you on with Goldeneye. All right, we're gonna have to get a. We're gonna have to get a. Uh, we're gonna have to get a meet up here pretty soon. And a uh, couple things I wanted. I would would love to do one time. Do like a uh, live taping of a, of an episode where we have a gather all and we just kind of have guests on, and we have whole things and do an entire episode in front of a live audience. Like have everybody's drinking at a bar or something like that. So that's something I want to get in the future. But and then also we're gonna have to do more of the live. Uh, Goldeneye, so I'm definitely gonna have to take you up on that. And we're gonna have to get Th- Thomas. You gotta come to the East Coast here soon, buddy. Are you doing that, Thomas? Because I, w- I mean, I personally would love to show you so many things in New York. It's like, <laughs> and you've got that, so many people will be so excited to see you. Yep. Yeah, you, you have my personal DM. So. <laughs> <laughs> Keep in touch. All right, all right, guys. Well, thank you so much, and I and I can't wait to do this again and, and uh, hang out in the future.